And so this is our teaching text today. It comes from one of the letters from the Apostle John. This is 1 John 2, 3 to 6. And we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So today is Sunday, and that, that means just about a week ago, early Monday morning, I was sitting outside. It was beautiful like this. And it, what felt like out of nowhere, tears started to well up in my eyes. And before too long, there I am by myself on our patio, like weeping, like full on, um, like gross weeping, not the type of like the gentle, like in the, in the cinema where people are like quietly and beautifully weeping. I'm like uncontrollably weeping on our patio. And I didn't plan this, you know, I didn't set out in the morning hours and say, okay, at 8.30 today, I'm going to uncontrollably weep on my patio. And you might be wondering, this is a weird way to start a teaching kind of why are you sharing this with me? Well, I'll, I'll tell you. See, there are two things, you can call them postures, if you will, that disproportionately kind of draw and stir my affections for Jesus. And they're, they're odd uh, to me. I'm not saying these have to be prescriptive for you. They are just for me. But they're silence and music. And maybe it's because I, I say things like I have all the words, which means I'm actually deathly afraid of silence. But there's something about it when I'm able to come to quiet before the living God that just like stirs my affections for Jesus. And the other is music. And so there I am Monday morning, and I'm listening to music. And these are the words that kind of wrenched something open in me. I, I, these may be lyrics to a song. It's the first time I ever heard it. So these are, the, these are these words. Jesus, you have my yes. You lead and I will follow. Where you go, I'll go. You have my yes. See, we've been uh, working our way through this little series called The Good Way. And this series is quite simply about practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of our city. And we hope to anchor ourselves in these values of presence, formation, and renewal so that we might be formed into the type of women and men for whom love is this, like, this natural response that wells up in us as we move toward our neighbor for their good. And as we've been working our way through this series of practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of the city, you know, presence, formation, today we hit renewal, this fear has kind of welled up in me. Kind of like this low-grade anxiety, you could say. And the fear is this. What if we don't? Like, what if we take a whole month and you faithfully come and you receive these teachings and calls to action of sorts? And like, what if we take this whole month to outline a trajectory of life in Christ and being, you know, rooted in the presence of Jesus and filled with grace and a desire to be formed into the way of Jesus. What if we take a month to do this and a year from now, no one is practicing the way of Jesus. And actually nothing is taking root and we're just continuing to play church. Like, what if we don't? And the sphere... I, I guess it was like, as I heard the words of the song on the, that song on Monday morning, it was as though Jesus was interrupting this fear with an invitation to examine the fear, not necessarily to dispel it and just, you know, go, it's okay, Kyle, I've got you, which would be really nice, but instead Jesus, it, it was as though he was turning me toward the fear to deal with it, to attend to it, you might say. 
and and the question that came to the fore of my mind, likely because it was the lyrics that were not <laughs> listening to, was the simple question of, do I have yours? Like, do I have your yes? Are, are you willing to yield your yes? And I had, I was like, yes to what? And I, I still don't have an answer to that, by the way, but this, this simple question of, are you willing to yield your yes? Like, if I call you, will you say yes? See, the truth is, is I, I actually have no control. I have no control over whether anybody will respond to the invitation to practice the way of Jesus. I have no control over whether anyone in our leadership team, let alone anybody who calls Gateway Home, I have no control over whether anybody practices the way of Jesus. All I have, and really all we have individually, is Jesus' invitation and our response. Because if there's any manipulation or coercion, that's not the spirit of Jesus. All we have is our response. And not to make this into like a, a personal uh, therapy session or anything like that for me, but um, you know, as I was sitting there and I was seeing this, I, I don't think the fear was so much what if we don't practice the way of Jesus and more, what if I fail to do so? What if I'm up here most weeks talking about this Jesus thing and there is just a wide increasing gap between the life I live and the things that I say? What if I don't practice the way of Jesus? What if I like falter in integrity? This this is the fear. And perhaps there's a fear like that that kind of rises up in you. What if I profess to be a Christian and yet my life looks nothing like Jesus? The question that might be in front of you today is, are you willing to yield your yes? And in some sense, this is the dynamic that I want us to lean into today because today we come to this third value that's anchoring us in a practice of the way of Jesus, and that is renewal. And so just to kind of get some defining of terms, you can see this. This is a little bit more of a lengthy quote. This is on the notes there. Um, but this is borrowing from Mark Sayers, who's a, like a cultural commentator and a pastor uh, down in down under in Australia. But Mark Sayers, he has this to say. He says, renewal is the refreshment, release, and advancement that individuals, groups, churches, and cultures experience when they are realigned with God's presence. So you could just sum that up and say it's the refreshment we experience when we are aligned with God's presence. Renewal is the resumption of our God-given purpose to partner with God fully, participating in His plan to flood the world with His presence. You can, you can kind of tell that a pastor wrote that because there's so many P's in there. It's like all the alliterations are going forward. You're like, yes presence and practice and all these things. This is renewal. The refreshment we experience when we are aligned with God's presence. And renewal can really be expressed in a whole myriad of ways. It can range from justice for the poor to ecological care. And what I what I make what I hope to make clear today is we're not going to dive into those things. Those though those are implications of renewal. What I hope to make clear is that personal renewal must proceed corporately that we will not see the type of cultural or social or corporate renewal until we ourselves encounter personal renewal. Personal renewal must receive corporate renewal. And in order to tell, to see this, I, I want to tell the story of renewal in three chapters. The end, the Father's heart, and faith. So, if you're taking notes, the end. Uh, some of you may know my story, but if you don't, in short, I, I was not a kind person in uh, my college years. Um, if, if you were to categorize me as a type of person, a pejorative, you might have called me like a bro. 
So I, I, I played college hockey. I didn't really care much about what people, you know, that was me. I, I was just living for the weekend. Uh, but to my surprise, somebody invited me to follow the way of Jesus. Literally, the question is, do you want to do this Jesus thing? I said, yeah, let's do it. What do we do? <laughs> and so this, this was like the surprise of my life was that Jesus was so kind to me. And in some sense, this has actually been the great theme of my life, is God's kindness to me in Jesus. And soon after this, like, I don't know, declaration of faith in between my sophomore and junior year of undergrad, I, I began reading the Bible. By the way, the Bible is a strange thing to read. So if you find yourself, like, entering into the world of the Bible for the first time or the first time in a long time, do this together. It's like shameless, but with these little community groups that pop up around Des Moines, um, or just find Karen. She does this thing, like, let the, Karen, would you raise your hand, please? Yeah, Karen is, like, well-versed in Lectio Divina. Like, it's a personal, if you just want to know, how can I creatively imagine reading the scriptures? Come to Karen, she'll drop some knowledge on you. But, that being said, I start reading the Bible in conjunction with devouring Christian literature. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Christians write a lot of books because Christians buy a lot of books. Just a little FYI. Um, so I'm reading this, and people start giving me books. You know, I get, like, near Christianity, all the C.S. Lewis stuff, and I'm like, oh, yeah, the, the Narnia guy. And so I have all these things that are coming to me, and then I don't know who I got it from, um, like, the full series, but I think my mom gave this to me. Like, I'm a Christian. She's like, you might like this Christianese thing. So she hands me the Left Behind series. Anybody? <laughs> Anybody for the Left Behind series? Yeah. Um, so if you're not familiar with this series, it's a little niche. Uh, but let me just map this out for you. This series is like, um, it's a series of novels that get made into some like B-grade films with Nick Cage uh, and Kirk Cameron, but that's an, an aside. Um, they basically play out this elaborate what-if scenario. Like, what is going to happen at the end of days? What the Bible will call the day of the Lord. And, and the basic idea goes like this. Believe in Jesus. Affirm him as Lord as cosmic king, and you will be secure in the day of judgment. And what that means, secure in the day of judgment, means this. You will be caught up, raptured. This is rapture theology. And in that, you will be then safe from seven years of tribulation, where the earth will be refined, and then you will rule with Jesus in the coming millennial kingdom. This is the basic idea. And I'm not, like, advocating for that perspective. I'm just saying this is the left-behind series. And so there I am, a new follower of Jesus, trying to make sense of this weird book, a new way of seeing the world, and I'm reading the Left Behind series. And so, I'm, uh, you know, riding back to campus on a bus from a weekend, and uh, one of my friends comes up, and he just point blank, he, he looks at the book I'm reading on the bus, and he goes, so do you believe that stuff? And I think in my zeal and in my ignorance, I didn't know there were other options. I was just like, yeah, I do. By the way, that's a bold response to the Left Behind series. Um, so there I was, and you know, you fast forward a few years later, um, and I'm going to be graduating from undergrad, and I don't know what I'm doing, like most people when they're 21, 22. And so a mentor was like, hey, you should go to seminary. I'm like, yes, what's that? So then I apply to a seminary there, crazy enough to accept me, and I go there, and I start, then I like, I basically onboard a whole theology to support my previous yes. So now I'm able, I'm well-versed in what's, you know, called premillennial dispensationalism. I can like laugh about rapture theology. This is where I'm at in my life. Then something surprising happens again. I'm hanging out with Jess, uh, that's my wife. We're not married yet. And we're at a little place called Old Chicago, an old pizza place. 
And um, she points out this pattern in my life that she's observed over our little time hanging out. She goes, you're a litterer. And I was a litterer. At the same time, I also chewed. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, I had a bunch of these things in my car. It's called spitters. If you don't know what that is, you can Google it. Um, and what happens is when you fill up your spitter, then you just chuck it out the window. Um, I'm not saying this is something I endorse as well, like the Left Behind series. They're a little on par. Um, that was not very pastoral. I apologize. So anyways, I was a literate. And on one occasion, I was about to do this, or I was talking about doing it. I don't remember the sequence of events. Um, but Jessica turns in and, like, she rips me a new one. Yes. And she didn't come at me with some, like, robust theological argument pointing out how, like, my ecological care was inconsistent with my... She didn't do this. She just said, you're being inconsiderate. Don't be a jerk. The moral of the story is, is uh, I had really yet to reckon with this way that my theology was shaping me. I didn't reckon with the, the consequences and the inconsistencies. And you go, how are you talking about littering and theology in the same breath? Well, um, they have a connection. You see, I was operating on the left-behind paradigm that all of this was just going to burn up and Jesus would bring me back to the new stuff. And this was the picture of my end. And it had real consequences. In this paradigm, uh, the earth did not matter, one, because I wasn't destined for the earth. I was going to heaven, baby. And two, the earth was subject to the effects of sin. And so really, that's outside of my domain of control. I can't really do anything, or so I thought, about the way that sin has ravaged the world. So to talk about renewal wasn't even relevant. It wasn't a theological category available to me at that time. So you might as well just throw your spitter out the window. And the problem, in part, with this view of, of the end is the book of the Bible at the end, the Revelation. In Revelation 21, we read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. By the way, that's Revelation 21.1. That would be like the verse that gets cited for the destruction of the earth. So this is like the proof text that you should just let it all go to hell in a handbasket. But what, what happens is if you keep reading, you encounter this in verse two. This is still John the visionary. I, then I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look or behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people. Where are the people? people on earth and he will dwell with them they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God he will wipe away every tear from their eyes there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and then check this out in verse 5 he who is seated on the throne said I am making all things new I have no way to reckon with the creator God making all things new because I stopped at verse 1 so the end of the story is, is not so much about us getting out of here. We're made from earth for earth. In Genesis, humanity is described as the composition of dirt and divine breath. We are earthlings. Like, this is the place. God's renewal is coming here. The end is about renewal. And this brings us to our second chapter, which is the Father's heart. You see, how we imagine the end, it's going to shape how we live in the present. And you may not be 
actively or consciously thinking about this, but you, you do this. If you have a 401k, you've done this. You've started to imagine how the end is gonna shape your, your present. Now it's just your portfolio, but you have some, by the way, if you're like in your, if you're a millennial and you've not started thinking about retirement, please do. It's like you would do well to like start thinking about how your end of life is gonna be. Because how we, like our picture of the end, it shapes how we live in the present. And I share this because if we're going to talk about renewal, let alone realize, realign our lives in light of God's presence, we would do well to know the story that tells us what the end is. And to get a glimpse into the Father's heart, just give me a minute. Okay, it's more than it's like three minutes. And I'm going to outline the whole biblical story. Are you ready for this? Ready now? Okay. So this is how it goes. God established a cosmic kingdom. And this is what we call creation. And then in this kingdom, God chose to represent his love in the world through humanity. We get this picture when um, we read about the image of God. So this is women and men created in God's image to share in his rule and reign over creation. But then as the story goes, uh, humanity believes this lie that God is holding out on them. That there's actually a better way and that way is as per their definition. It's like they get to choose what is good and bad. That will lead to flourishing. That will be the establishment of their own kingdom. But in a twist, even in the face of this rebellion, God does not abandon creation. God does not abandon his like, kingdom project. And instead, from among these rebels who have said, God, we want nothing to do with you because through our ingenuity, we will make a better way forward. God invites one of those rebels to trust him. And this person is uh, Abram, who we know as Abraham. And then with Abraham, he, he invites him to join him in restarting this kingdom project. And there are, there are moments of trust and fidelity that are beautiful. But if you have read uh, bits and pieces of the Old Testament, how, how does that go? Is that a thumbs up or a thumbs down? I'm seeing some very reluctant thumbs downs. Yes. It's like the, the technical term is the Old Testament is a negative example. So a lot of, like, when you read about the genocides, when you read about polygamy, these, it's not saying, like, thus saith the Lord, go forth and have many wives. No, it's like, this is the negative example of what happens in a society when people define good and bad on their own terms. But even in the midst of that, there are moments of trust and fidelity. But overall, it is the Father's fidelity toward creation. And what you see is that Abraham and his descendants after him, they, they fail to trust in the Father's desire for their flourishing. And ultimately, they leave God without a partner to see this kingdom project advance. The, the, the prophet Hosea will talk about this as um, this tragic story of a wife leaving her husband to go to another lover. And then in the wake of that, which is like this long separation, 400 years of silence in the biblical story, this no-name manual labor from the boonies named Jesus of Nazareth, he comes on the scene announcing that the kingdom project that God talked about all the way back in the beginning is up and going. And that it is truly at hand. And then he goes around acting as though he's not only the one announcing it, but the one who can do it. And we see this because Jesus does these romantic, like, remarkable things. He preaches good news to the poor. He then, he, he heals the lame. The, the sight of the blind are, are recovered as Jesus draws near. And the oppressed are liberated. Jesus is fulfilling like this messianic hope. See, where Adam and Eve and Abraham and Israel, where you and I ultimately reject God's definition of flourishing, Jesus remained faithful. 
This is the story of the scripture. It's this unified account that leads to and finds its fulfillment in Jesus' faithfulness. He is the truly human one. He is the true Israel. And then even in the face of death, like death on a cross, Jesus entrusts himself to the care of the Father. And why? Because the Father's heart is for renewal. See, the end is all about renewal. And in the middle of it, it's all about renewal because the Father's heart is for renewal. And Jesus knows the Father's heart. Did, did you ever think about this? Like when you're reading through the Gospels? One of the first books that was recommended to me to read in the Scriptures was John. By the way, John is an odd book, like an odd Gospel account to read because some people would be like, it's like he's on an acid trip or something like that. It's bizarre. There's, it's just, it's kind of funky to read. And yet there's something that is so beautiful that comes forward in the Gospel according to John. Just think about this. This is the type of stuff Jesus says. Littered across the Gospels, we catch Jesus saying things like this. This is John 5, 19 and 20. Jesus gave them this answer. And the, the scene is this, that Jesus has just inappropriately healed somebody. He's just, you know, he's like healed somebody, restored them, but he's done it on the Sabbath. So it's good thing, wrong category. And then Jesus says this to the people who are protesting. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do, because they're asking, by what authority are you doing this? He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. This is Jesus. Jesus isn't going rogue. Jesus is saying, I am abiding, remaining with the Father. This is the way that I know how to move in the world. One pastor who's commentating on Jesus notes this. He says, if Jesus was that dependent on the Father, and listen to this, then you and I should recognize how ludicrous it is for us to set out on our own without any direction or guidance from the Father. But how often is this the case? Like, this in some sense is the story of scriptures, of like humanity setting out on their own. And we, let's just, let's be honest, like, just setting our egos aside for a moment. We are amazing. So our ego is set aside, but just think about how amazing you are right now. How did you get here today? Some of you rode your bike. Some of you walked. But the majority of us did what? We drove a car. Let me tell you something. I'm driving a 2013 Honda Odyssey. I press a button, the seats warm up. You're like, oh no, did I just have an accident? No, I didn't. <laughs> this is We are amazing. Somebody thought, I know how to put coils that will heat up in this seat and it won't explode. Look at look where we're standing right now. This comes from a river, the drinking water from Des Moines, but hardly any people swimming it. Nevertheless, um, this is beautiful. Look, look, at the, look at the skyline. People thought, you know what we'll do? We're going to put a tall building over there. We are amazing. Right now, we are amplifying the sound. How? Because they figured out how to run electric electricity. I mean, just think about this. Are you not... A, okay, just the rest of your day, just be amazed at human ingenuity. I, I We could go on, but I'm not going to. But we're amazing creatures. And this is part of the problem. Because so often we set out to write our own renewal stories because we actually have the imprint of renewal on our hearts. Like this is something we long for. It's in the marrow of our bones. It's just that we miss the point of renewal. And to make this point, Jesus shares a parable. The parable is just a story that's set alongside life. 
And this parable is in Luke 15. And you likely know this parable. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And in this story, there are, are two sons. There's an older and a younger. And the younger son says that he wants his share of the inheritance to his father. And, and this functionally does two things. First, it essentially says to his father, I wish you were dead. In the framework here, there's this, the eldest son is going to inherit the majority of the estate. And that's who the, like the line of the name of that family is going to go through, through the eldest son. But the younger son says, I want my share of the inheritance. So it says, one, I wish you were dead, Dad. And then two, it cuts out some of the goods from the older brother. So it creates this tension, but the father allows both. He allows the insult and he allows his younger son to functionally steal from his older son. And if you know the story, the younger son departs and he, he's wasting his inheritance in the, the scriptures call on wild living. This is like me in college, I'm just wasting away in wild living. And what the younger son thinks is his freedom eventually lands him destitute and scrounging for food in a pink pen. By the way, that's not a good look if you're trying to like be a good Jew and be kosher. That's like, that is the ultimate place of humiliation. And it's there, in the ultimate place of humiliation, that the son starts thinking, you know what? The servants in my father's house are better off than this. They know when their meal is coming, they're cared for. And so he devises this plan to turn back and go back, not as a son, but as a, as a servant. So he prepares his speech. And just imagine this. You are in a place of, of utter desolation, and you are then going back to the place that you left, that you insulted. So he has a pretty good speech in hand. But what he doesn't know is that his father has been desperately searching on the horizon, just hoping, longing, praying that the one who was lost would be found, would come back. And there's this moment, this moment when the father is scanning the horizon and he sees his son. Can you imagine that scene? I'm just learning what this is, but like, I'm starting, our boy just, our oldest boy just turned four. And I'm starting to learn, like, like I can pick him out of other kids. Because he kind of has this run where he pulls his arms and goes back. It's not really a run, it's like a waddle, but it's, it's the best. And I'm like, oh, that's Finn. And so I just imagine this father who, who knows the profile of his son. He sees them on the horizon. And what the scripture, what the story tells us is that he makes a beeline for his son. And you've probably heard this, that in order to do this, the father would have robes on. And so he, this is the, the, the conversation about girding your loins. Um, he gathers up his cloak and he runs. This is a sign of humiliation. The father is willing to humiliate himself because he sees his son and he runs out there. And you have to imagine just, just like the dread that the son is experiencing because the, the, the anger, the vengeance, the how dare you. So he has this speech. And as soon as he, he sees his father come, you have to imagine that he starts in on his speech but the father silences. No, no, no. Like, go and get a rope. Go and get the ring. Like, kill the fat. Like, let's celebrate. And this is what they do. They celebrate because the one who was dead is alive. The one who was lost is found. This is the Father's heart. To, to see us come to life in his presence. But you know, the story doesn't stop there. And often we forget about the older brother. But the other older brother catches wind about who's home, like who's home. And there's bitterness, like seething bitterness. 
But what's so curious to me is that the brother is, is waiting out, just, just stewing in the vitriol of this circumstance. And the father comes looking for the older brother. He finds the older brother and invites him in to celebrate. And do you, do you remember how the brother goes in on the father? I've done all of this for you. Do you remember what the father says? Everything I have is yours. It's always been yours. This is the father's heart. The father's heart is for the rebellious and the religious alike. The father's heart is for those who are far away and are coming near and those who are near but don't know who the father is. The father is actually inviting all of us in. This is the father's heart. To come in to his presence. And as you read through the scriptures, what you'll come to realize is that this is this plumb line through the weird scenes and all that, through the beauty and brokenness and confusion, all the way through, we cannot shake the tenacious love of the Father. This is the Father's heart. And that brings us to our last chapter. Faith. And um, just to start in on faith, We don't have to talk God into the world. I don't know if you knew that. Like, it's, it's not as though we're saying, I really care. I'm doing Joppa once a month. If God would just wait, come on. Like, don't you see? Like, it's, it's not as, it's, no. God is in the heavens saying, I'm redeeming the whole world. Where are you? There's a pastor, Pastor Tony Evans, and he puts it like this. Faith is acting as if God is telling the truth. Just sit with that for a moment. Faith is acting as if God is telling the truth. In other words, faith is this type of active trust. It's where we join our ambition to the Father's heart. Faith is acting as if God's telling the truth. I love how Dallas Willard gets at this, and now we're like on par for at least one or two Dallas Willard quotes per teaching, so... Here's how, how Willard gets at this. The revolution of Jesus is first and always a revolution of the human heart. His revolution does not proceed through the means of social institutions and laws, the outer forms of our existence, intending that these would then impose a good order of life upon people who come under their power. Rather, Jesus's is a revolution of character which proceeds by changing people from the inside through ongoing personal relationship with God and one another. It is a revolution that changes people's ideas, beliefs, feelings, habits of choice, as well as their bodily tendencies and social relations. And hear this, church. The revolution of Jesus penetrates to the deepest layers of their souls. See, to my mind, the renewal that we long for that is like the new heavens and the new earth breaking into the, our present circumstances. It is a revolution of the human heart. It is the Father scanning the horizon to draw us into his presence to ask this simple question like, do, do I have your yes? Are you willing to yield that? Here are our teaching texts again. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. 
the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This might be a little risky, um, a little vulnerable for you. Um, but how many of you here, just by a show of hands, would say that you're like a follower of Jesus, like a Christian? Okay. So, uh, how many of you would claim that you're living like Jesus did? There's no shame. A little bit here and there. Fits and starts. Yeah. I don't care what you've been doing before you came here today. Like, I, I think so often what we do when we come to church is we're like, okay, I got to make it to Sunday. Because we're living from this framework of like, I, I'm going, I, I'm going to show the Father my willingness to participate in this story of renewal. That's a spirit of religiosity, not a spirit of faith. And so there we are, we're like yearning to be and do this thing. And Jesus is simply asking us, like, do I, do I have your yes? See, what if, what if today is this simple question? What if this is all that Jesus is asking for? Like, do I have your yes? And what the other side of that question is, I have no idea. Like, I, I don't actually know if that's a relevant question for any of you. It might just have been for me, Monday morning, you know, weeping on my patio, like Jesus inviting me to just say yes to whatever. And so I don't know what the Spirit might be inviting you into. But can we, can we get, like, a little weird for a moment? that agreeable just a, like an appropriate amount of weirdness okay um, I got like one nod so that means yes <laughs> what if God's actually interested in you like right now whether I don't know you're like nine years old and running in the grass or you're in your latter years of life like what if God is saying I have something more for you more than just whatever like your mundane devotional life is but m- more. What if Jesus is saying, I have more for you and it's me? Or are you willing to yield your yes? I, I'm not going to like ask you to stand up and affirm like, a commitment to Jesus because that's kind of a, I don't know, it's not our vibe yet. Um, but in a moment, we're going to respond to Jesus. I'm going to invite you to take the bread and the cup as a place of remembering that God in Christ has moved toward us with such intensity and intentionality that he gave himself over for the good of humanity. We come to the bread and the cup in part because it draws us into the life of Jesus and in part because it is a wake-up call every week that the life we live is not in our own strength. Like, you're like, I want to say yes, Kyle. Like, I want to yield my yes, but I don't think I actually can. Well, you might need some power for that. You might need a little, like, Holy Spirit up in that to, to actually elicit something in you beyond your capacity to just remain devoted and disciplined. You might need some grace to infuse your discipline in the midst of your circumstances. 